Okay, everybody. Um, okay, so we are going to finish up, you know, <laughs> hopefully chapter nine. We will um, uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do in the fall. But the, uh, today, though, as we um, watch, I, I, I printed out the text that theoretically I would like to get through today. The, there is a, um, a common thread. Obviously, Jesus, you know, the things that we've already, but uh, something that's been kind of introduced now in this section that, in a way that hasn't been before. So, we're going to watch Max McLean here. All right, so the, uh, what would be the kind of the common thread throughout this section of the Gospel of Mark? What is, what is Jesus talking about, and then what is he using to, well, I'll tell you, he's talking about discipleship, but what, who is he using as the uh, template or the paradigm? Yeah, children. Um, this section is all about children. So, if you want to open up in your Bibles or grab your little packet, we're going to just talk a little bit about so this, uh, Mark 9, verse 30, Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection for the second time. This is the second time. And then at the, in chapter 10, starting in uh, verse 31, I'm sorry, 32 is his third uh, pr- uh, prophecy about his death and resurrection. So th- this is like in between. All right. And this actually is... Uh, coming up to a climax of this section on discipleship that started back um, in, in chapter 4 or something or another. Um, so, it, so Jesus is talking about discipleship, and when it comes to the kind of the ultimate lesson of discipleship, who is Jesus using? He's using children or the child for a couple reasons, and this is really important. Now, um, so, first and foremost is uh, this section on who is the greatest, and um, so Jesus obviously asks, well, they're talking on the way. So, uh, they came to Capernaum, and what were you discussing on the way? Now, the way isn't necessarily to Capernaum, but it's the way to Jerusalem, and that would be the next section you'd find out. So, he's, he's coming from the north, and he's coming to Capernaum, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem. So he's on his way. Now, for the Gospel of Mark, the way of the Lord is is this way of discipleship for the disciples, but it's his way of salvation for Jesus. So Jesus is on the way towards death and resurrection. So, of course, them discussing who is the greatest is a clear sign that you know they're not they're not quite sure of. <laughs> what Jesus is doing and where he's going and why he's going, even though he just told them. All right, so um, the, uh, he asks him what's going on. And then he sat down and called the 12. So that, in verse 35, that is a, um, that's a sign that Jesus is about to teach them. That's uh, when, as teacher, when Jesus sits down, he always teaches and he calls the 12. So it, it's a most intimate circle. 
If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, which echo or is then echoed at the very end of the reading, right? The last shall be first, the first shall be last. So again, we have this kind of uh, repetition because everything in between then kind of fills out what that means. So whoever is last and servant of all, that would be the question. I want to be first. So, so Jesus isn't, isn't, doesn't have any problem with the, um, them discussing who is the greatest. He, he just redefines what that means. To be the greatest is, is to be last of all and servant of all. Now, the other thing about this, too, is that we, uh, you know, there's a lot of false piety in the world where everyone wants, you know, that some people, you might know these people, you might be one of these people that put other people first as a, sign, as a, as a way of, um, you know, becoming the greatest. Kind of this, this backwards way of understanding things. Uh, however, um, Jesus radicalizes even that notion at the very end end where he basically says you have to die. I mean, this is the thing where you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. So that's where he's going to. So this, again, is not something then you can do. And that's what Peter's exclamation at the end of the reading. Well, who can be saved? So even the notion that, you know, I want to be like a child, I'm going to try to be like a child, you you can't do that. You cannot do that. It's God who gives that to you. It's only God who can make you a child. And um, so that's, that's really important because I think the tendency when some people read this is I have to either you know, act childish, which is obviously silly when you think about it, or I have to kind of take on these characteristics of a child and then kind of incorporate them in our life. Well, in this section, um, Jesus basically says you can't do that. God's going to have to do that for you. <clears throat> and then that will be defined according to what I say, not according to what you think children are. All right. So um, he, he takes a child and puts in the midst of them, and then taking him in his arms, he said to them. So this is really important. So Jesus is holding this child in, you know, kind of in his laps. He's sitting. So it's, it's a really powerful image if you think about it in terms of, you know, just kind of visually the this notion, because where would, where would the child be? If he's sitting in his lap, be close to his heart. So this is, a, you know, he, he takes hold of him. The, the, the notion is, um, to, it could be understood two ways. Uh, taking him in his arms could be just, you know, kind of like holding him, or it could be embracing him. Both, it means the same thing. So, and it's not really clear either Jesus is, so I think both images, though, visually, shows the fact that the child is close to Jesus' heart. Now, that, that's really important for us because those who are close to Jesus' heart are close to the kingdom of God. And if we had more time, we'd actually see that in Mark chapter 12. When Jesus says to a man, you are very close to the kingdom of God. All right, anyways, that's beside the point. So, this is, then this is like, how does one become close to Jesus' heart? And of course, the child, how does the child get close? He's picked up. He doesn't climb into his lap. He's picked up. He's brought close to Jesus. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus in verse 37 says, whoever receives, well, in the ESV, now he said welcomes. It's the same 
kind of idea. I like the idea of receiving, though, because in order to receive something, you have to be given something. So that helps out kind of with the image of God has to give it to you. You can't, you can't, you know, take it yourself. All right. So uh, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So at first, um, Jesus said, you want to be greatest, you have to be like a child. But what's interesting is in our, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll make you a child. But he says, whoever receives one such child in my name. So, yeah, so children are not just a, um, like a symbol here, but children are, yeah, it, children are gifts. So this is now we're kind of redefining what the family of God is looking like, or not redefining, but defining what it looks like, flushing it out, and how uh, important children are. Now, the great thing, though, is that how we understand children kind of in our modern sense, we understand it in terms of like an age, right? You know, eventually, right, somebody won't be a child anymore. Well, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus is actually saying this is, uh, this is for life. Now, of course, again, the Gospel of Mark says uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So we already have this notion of ch- being a child already introduced at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And we, we think about it in terms of, um, like, sonship. That's how the Apostle Paul talks about it. But now we're, we're actually understanding more of what that means to be a child. A child of God. All right. So, um, the, uh, so Jesus says, you know, it receives me in my name. Receives not just me, but God. So you have this notion that the child is not only a gift to you, but the child is a giver himself because the child actually gives somehow God to you. So this notion of a relationship, and we actually see this later in chapter 12, when a uh, man comes up to Jesus and says, what, who's, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus is like, well, come on. You, you should know this. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And, well, actually, Jesus says, uh, you know, you should know this. What, what do you, well, how do you read it? And then that's the man who responds that way. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's right, that you are very close to the kingdom of God. Um, so when he does that, he is demonstrating how love and himself, so this, this, this idea is that Jesus is actually asking this man in chapter 12 you know, to love me and to love my neighbor, to love, to love Jesus as God, to love Jesus as his neighbor, because when he does that, when he receives Jesus, he actually is receiving God himself. So this, this idea that there's this divine, na- divine um, kind of essence to even neighborly love, godly love. Okay, I think that's maybe a little tangent. All right, so Jesus says, welcome in my name. The next story, what is this man who's not part of the 12 doing? He's doing a mighty work in whose name? <laughs> 
Jesus' name. And then what? Yeah, they're supposed to welcome people who do things in my name, and they precisely don't. <laughs> they actually want to um, stop him. So it's kind of funny. So Jesus tells them to do something, and they, I mean, right afterwards, do the exact opposite. So that kind of flushes out. That's the uh, contrasting nature of what happens. But of course, then, uh, in verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say, whoever gives you a cup of, uh, of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by any means lose his reward. What's interesting is, is that in the Gospel of Matthew, do you know who you give a cup of water to? Child. Yeah. So um, these stories are, are already connected. But it, it really comes to a height, though, in the temptations to sin, verses 42 through 50. And a lot of people will wonder, you know, about, like, is Jesus speaking literally about cutting your hand off, cutting your foot off? And um, it, it's, it's, hyper, it's hyperbola. I mean, it's this idea that you, um, what's most important has to stay important no matter what. Uh, you also get that language to whoever hates his mother and father. Jesus doesn't really want you to hate your mother and father. He just wants you to love, love him more than them. So the idea here is whoever causes one of these little ones, again, there, there hasn't been any sort of change in, in settings, so the child is still in his arms. These little ones, you know, so he's still talking about this, this child here, the greatest one. So that's the thing, is that our, yeah. It's not just some random child, it's the child that he's used to show who is the greatest. It's the one who's last of all. So, it's really important. (laughs) So, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Okay, great. So, you know, if you find yourself causing little ones to sin, um, Jesus doesn't want you to throw yourself into the sea. It's very analogous to Patricia's story. Um, You know, he he wants you to stay close to his heart um, through repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And uh, we'll actually see that most explicitly in the rich young man. All right, so anyway, so this whole point, though, is that, um, you know, Jesus is still making this child to be this super important and something that we have to kind of think about in terms of our own daily life and what it means to receive a child in Jesus' name. Okay, verse t- uh, now we go to chapter 10, teaching about divorce. It seems like we're taking, yeah. How does salt use its other than being used? Yeah, well, the uh, let's let's go back to the um, all right. So, verse forty-nine: For everyone will be salted with fire. That's probably a quotation from Leviticus when you would salt a sacrifice. So the idea is. Um, Analogous to what Carol just said, everyone will be salted with fire. So everyone being like if you're dying to yourself, sacrificial living, um, that's how you get salted with fire, is you're burned up. 
But it, it, so if it if it's lost its saltiness, the, the, like the notion of what it's for. So if you if you no longer are living according to what you were made for, you've lost your who you are. Yeah, right. And I, I mean, so we think more literally, like, oh, I got to check to see if the salt is still taste salty, right? Uh, that's not what he's thinking about. What Mark is talking about is this notion of using it for what it's for. Yeah. So if, if salt is no longer, I don't know, I don't know why you would use salt for anything besides, you know, eating, but, or preserving, you know, I mean, I don't know, do you, exfoliating, do you use salt for exfoliating? Yeah, scrub. I don't know, what else do you use it for? I mean, you're not going to use it to like, I don't know, like, uh, oh, we use it to melt water, or uh, ice too, yeah. <laughs> oh, for wounds? Okay, yeah. These are all these are all the purposes, but you wouldn't you wouldn't use salt for building a chair, you know it doesn't make any sense. How do you make it salty again? Well, I mean this is a real question. How, how do you make well you or or yeah or use it for what it's for? Return it to its purpose. And again, that's it's analogous to Patricia's story, right? Patricia had an abortion. And through the forgiveness of sins and restoration, she's restored to the life that God wants her for. I mean, that's what that's the notion of that's how you return salt, it's saltiness, is to return to um, what you were made for, what God created you for, what he saved you for. I mean, so. All right. Yes, Krista. Well, yes and no, because children's belief isn't always great. Um, yeah, only, only if it's uh, understood in the terms of grace. And that's what Jesus talks about, is that when Peter says, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man it's impossible. So if we look at children as an example for their just simply being children, that's wrong. That's works righteousness. But if we see the faith that's been given to them as exemplary, then that, yeah, that's the one we want to follow, which of course is never exclusively in children, as we understand the term child. But it could also be found in adults, but that's precisely a child, childlike faith or a, a, a child's faith. So yeah, this is something really important for us because... Um, also, too, th- critically thinking about children's faith is really important for us because what we usually, we want to understand, we can't impose our understanding of children on children. Children, do they have to try to be children? No, they're just children, right? Well, they're just children. I mean, I, I know plenty of children that, di- uh, that are diabolical, though, surely. So. <laughs> Yeah, they are who God created them. And that, that's one of those things that children don't have to try to do. They don't have to be that, right? They don't have to be, it's just like salt. It doesn't really have to be, it doesn't have to try to be salt. It is salt. But it, it loses its saltiness when it, and it, what, is it, what does it try to do? Be something besides what it's supposed to be. So that's the same with a child. Now, sadly enough, 
I know plenty of children who no, who no longer want to be children. I mean, I got 32 of them in middle school. And that's part of, that's part of the notion of uh, as adults helping children to be children. Not in the sense of like childish thing. And this is really important. Maybe I should have spent a little bit more time thinking about how to teach that to you. Um, unfortunately, too, nostalgia affects the way we understand childhood. This idea, like, we remember all the good times of our children, childhood, and then we, like, we want that for these people. Well, now we're imposing something upon these people, and we're not actually receiving them. I mean, that's the danger, too, when you work with children, especially if you feel like you have to lead them or teach them. You're always constantly battling this imposition of yourself on them. Um... So I really think the first order of business for you, like for anyone as being a, a, a teacher or a leader or just a parent or grandparent or anybody in the church that's older than, you know, that's just older, I won't say how old, is to pray for forgiveness that you receive the child and not, uh, impose yourself on the child. Because the only way to actually to the only way to actually this goes back to Jesus. So the only way to give Christ to the child is for, you have to first you have to first put him close to your heart like like Jesus does. So um yeah, so when we think about child faith and, you know, how to be, that, you know, to kind of how mimic that or, or how that exemplifies all of our faith, we really have to be, really be careful not to impose our notion of childhood and childishness in our own life. Yeah, because I always think about it, I mean, one of the things that really was interesting for me, you know, I had this realization that, you know, my child or when I worked with children, this existential, you know, things that happen in their life. You know, um, neighbor two down, two doors down, this boy, he has birthday. Um, another neighbor gave him a gift. It's very nice, you know, they came over. My daughter was, um, Audrey was uh, mommy's helper. I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's like a babysitting while you're, the parents are home. And she, you know, I asked, hey, Audrey, how'd it go? And she told me the story about how a neighbor across the street went over to the neighbor, who, the boy who had the birthday, fourth birthday. He op- he's so excited. He got another gift. Opens it up. It's a gift he already got. Ah, uh, he's devastated. Yeah, okay, so, you know, I can just tell him, hey, it's no big deal. What, you know, stop crying. What's wrong with you? Yeah, but for that boy, though, right? It's like, a, it's like, it's like existential. It's just, he's devastated. You can so you can either receive him and 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 embrace him, and help him through this, which we all probably can be able to do that. Because we know, life will move on after this. 
because we see a larger story. We see, you know, more of life than he does. Um, or we can tell him, hey, be quiet and stop crying. Stop being a baby. Okay, well, one receives the child, one imposes yourself on the child. One is, one is fulfilling Jesus' word, and one is you should tie, your, tie yourself to a great millstone and throw yourself in the sea. So this is something really that in this section, it can sound real nice and kind of ooh, heartwarming, you know, especially the baptismal text that's right after the teaching of divorce. But we have to be real critical about it. I think critically about it because there's, we have a lot to learn about ourselves and about children and our relationship to God. Because, of course, I mean, think about how God, you know, whatever, whatever is going on in your life. Oh, you know, you lost your job or your, your marriage is in shambles or your children aren't following Jesus anymore. Or all these huge things. I mean, from God's perspective, you're like, he, he could, what, what could he do? He could just tell you, hey. Be quiet, baby. Because he sees all of life. He sees more than you. I mean, think of that analogy. The analogy holds. But God doesn't do that to you. Because he's not a jerk. He receives you. He holds you close. He embraces you. He picks you up, takes you into his arms, and helps you through it. Okay. So there's a lot of interesting things. Let's, let's, the teaching about divorce, how does this have to do with children? I think it has to do with husband and wives, which it does, of course. But I mean, divorce, divorce is uh, harmful for children. Yeah. There's a lot to, a lot to be taught about, uh, uh, kind of broken down about this. But just real quick is that if children is a common thread through this text, then Jesus, when he brings up the you know, marriage, or I'm sorry, he doesn't bring it up, the, the Pharisees bring it up, but his response is, is that from the beginning, God created man and woman to do what? Be fruitful and multiply, this notion of growth. So already, when Jesus reminds Moses, or I'm sorry, reminds the Pharisees that Moses made this because of them, not because this is the way God wanted it, because Jesus is reminding them from the beginning, our life together is, is to be one of abundance. And how abundance is actually concretely fulfilled is through children. And divorce, you know, shatters, shatters what God has, has wanted. Again, though, Jesus is very descriptive and he's, he's realistic about things. So at the um, verses 10, 11, and 12... You know, he's describing these things. He, he gets it. He understands these, are, these things happen. So it's a call to return to what God had, had originally made us for. But there's, there's more to that. I kind of I want to get to the next section real quick before we got to go. Let the little children come to me. We read this all the time in baptismal. All right, so I... I think it was in confirmation. I think it, I, I just remember a child asking me this. I think it was. I think it was confirmation. So I had a. Uh, there was a uh, adult baptism at the Easter Vigil this last year, and one of the children. So we had had to go through the confirmation rite with the confirmation students, and 
I said, oh, hey, we're going to have an adult baptism. I think that was the context in which the child asked it, was, oh, that's why we still read this. Have you ever asked yourself, why do we read this text when it's an adult baptism? Hmm, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but apparently I wasn't the only one. There was a child, he's a seventh grader. And he said, "Oh, so you we read that little that we read that Bible passage about children because that adult is a little child because he just got baptized." I said, "Yeah, that's right. Very good." So, again though, that doesn't discount kind of the 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 actual child. So it's not like we because sometimes when we make children symbols, we, all, we actually kind of eradicate the child from the situation and just kind of make it about everybody. No, it's, it's uh, child is front and center. So, and yeah, okay, great. That's beside the point. So they were bringing children to him. Who's they? I don't know. Parents, probably, I'm thinking, because it's contrasted with the divorce. As the passage just before that, you have these two passages. Um. And that's throughout, you know, remember through the Gospel of Mark, there's always these kind of contrasting stories. Like we talked about the two feasts, right? The John the Baptist feast versus the feeding of the 5,000 feast. Okay. So the disciples, though, what are they doing? Yeah, the word rebuke. What are they treating them like? Think about the word rebukes most used with demons. Jesus rebukes demons. So this notion of rebuking is, man, oof. Not good. So when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was mad. Yeah. Again, two chapters ago, and uh, Peter got, you know, Jesus got mad at Peter. He gets mad. gets real mad, which is okay. But, um, yeah, he was indignant. They're trying to keep... Oh yeah, right. Well, that's exactly right. So um, they, they misunderstood, you know, what they were there for, what Jesus was there for, and what you know why, you know, children would be brought. I mean, so they, they really missed the boat on that one, uh, which is kind of you know sad, but also at the same time instructive. You know, I always wonder about people who, yeah, I mean, I'll tell the story. I think I might have told this before. Isaac was uh, a little boy. We were visiting a church. And uh, Usher came up to me, asked me to leave the service. I was a pastor. Um, so we were, yeah, I was incognito. And I, I got up and I walked out. And I was, I controlled my temper. I was very, I think I was very cool. <laughs> but I told him, I don't think I've ever been um, as unwelcomed at a church as I am right now. And I, I actually quoted this text. I said, well, I, I didn't really quote it. I kind of fumbled my words because I was kind of upset. But I was like, Jesus says, let the children come to me. And now you're asking me to take them away. Now, of course, this usher, poor guy, 
He's just doing what's been told. And I told him that. I said, listen, I know you're just doing what you've been told, but you can tell whoever told me this that it's wrong and, and uh, this is not what Jesus says. I said, in deference to you, I'm, I said, uh, in deference to you, yeah, I'll stand out here. I felt like I, felt like I was indignant. indignant. So maybe I, was, I, I did okay. But, you know, that's the thing. Now, of course, we, we, we still went to that church because we had family that went to that church. And a few years later, preacher's preaching. And he asks, you know, kind of asks a rhetorical question. About, I can't remember what it was about. But guess who answered? <laughs> Isaac. I mean, it was like, it was so poetic for me. I was like, hey, take that, man. He's paying attention and nobody else is. And you want this guy out of here? Forget about it. Aaron. It's true. Yeah. You mean like your your head pastor and like like all your pastors are there. And I mean it's it's not typical. Like it's so many times that like, Yeah, I do wonder. Yeah. Well, I still think the most countercultural thing is to, have, you know, have a family with that. Hey, you know, thank you so much. I've had a great year. I love teaching you. Time is up. Sorry, I'm a couple minutes late. All right. Arriba Dirty. We'll see you later.